I give you that international sensation. What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Hello and welcome to Queer and Now, the Talk Film Society podcast where we take you on a time-hopping journey through queer cinema going decade by decade to discover how it has evolved over the years. I am one of your hosts, Dave, and I'm here with my co-host, Manish Mother. Manish, uh, welcome back. We always do these episodes like we do these marathon sessions, so it feels like we talk all the time online, but I feel like I haven't talked to you in like a year uh, about about movies in a in a podcast setup. So how have you been? Oh man, doing really well. It's been, um, these movies are, that we're going to talk about, I'm very excited to talk about them. Um, and I am very excited to be here. I, although it's so funny because, like, I just listened to our latest episode while I was editing it. So, like, it's like this weird thing where it's like, it's been a long time since we've done this, but also, like, I was just in in it like last week <laughs> also i just heard your stupid voice i just yeah. was listening to this yes absolutely so we are still um you know kind of in the 1930s so into movies maybe a little bit harder to access the queer themes because they're not as outright uh but we'll see so now we are headed into uh, 1936, uh, and we're going to take a look at, I guess, what passes for a horror movies in the 1930s, uh, which is Dracula's Daughter. I say what passes for, not because it's, like, not real horror or whatever, but, you know, in terms of horror movies, I think sometimes we think of, like, jump scares and gore and blood, and this is not that kind of movie. Uh, it is certainly not filled with those kind of horror tropes because I don't think those had really been invented yet. So is is Dracula's Daughter, is this is this a movie you had seen before or is this kind of a brand new watch for you? This is uh, totally brand new. I had no idea it had even existed. And um, I think, I mean, I'm very unfamiliar with a lot of this kind of era of like horror movies. Like I've seen, I've seen the original Dracula. I'm pretty sure I've seen Frankenstein or, or like the wolf. I mean, I've seen like a lot of the Val Luton ones, but like not these like mm-hmm. universal. So I had no, yeah, I did not know this movie existed, but I was very excited to watch it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And for those of you who don't know about this movie, it's, you know, it's kind of a sequel to Bela Lugosi's Dracula to the point that they use a wax dummy of Bela Lugosi as the body of Dracula in the very beginning. So basically, I guess, like, it's so hard to describe this plotline because it starts with, you know, Dracula's death and you're introduced to, of course, like Van Helsing and all these characters you know, and you're introduced to this uh, this new character, um, Countess Mara Zaleska, uh, played by Gloria Holden, who we find out is Dracula's daughter. And it's all about like her fighting her urges, I guess, which I think is where you get the the queer subtext. Um, so like, I don't know what you thought, but from a queer lens, like this movie to me was pretty upsetting um, in terms of how how it was being looked at. Did you have that reaction or was it just kind of a, a fun movie to watch for you? Well, um, I think it was a little bit of both. Um, Mm -hmm. because like, 
as I like, I enjoyed the movie just as a you know horror movie from the era, and you know it, it was fun to watch. But um, I think as I was thinking more about it, as it was unfolding, and as I was reading about it, it does felt it was very upsetting, and it was. Um, I don't want to use the word offensive because I don't. I, I don't know. Mm. I just like I don't think this movie was set out to be offensive, but I think that it was like. I felt very much um, like I felt very much like it was a product of its time and reading more about sort of the political climate of the 1930s I found it to be really just like oh wow like I don't know. I, I, I want to talk more about how, like, this movie is, like, homophobic, but also very, like, I'm sure it has its, like, queer cult audience or queer cult fans, oh, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. like, talk about that, like, something... dichotomy a lot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think something we've talked about before in movies in this era is that. Into like before we did the 1930s, like we were in like the 2010s, like we were doing much more modern stuff, which yeah. were more. Um, those movies were at least a lot more than these movies, movies that were made for queer audiences, um, or at least with them in mind, whereas these certainly were not. Like, I don't think this was made in the 1930s and they were thinking, oh, what would gay people think about this, you know, the, this les- lesbian subtext? It was much more for straight audiences like yeah. there's there's a line in the movie where she's talking to her her manservant <laughs> sandor um which is you know just kind of a fussy queen in this movie and she mentions that once this curse is lifted she'll finally be able to live a normal life and to think normal things and when you pair that with the fact that the deaths in this movie are very gendered. Uh, I think she kills one man in this movie, and she does it very quickly. She just kind of dispatches him. Yeah. But with the women that she goes after, there is a gaze, and there is a longing, and yeah. there is an attempt to stop herself. So she wants to live this normal life without longing for women. I mean, that is the subtext that we're talking about here. That is, I mean, as I'm watching it, and it's so interesting, because I had seen this before, it's so interesting to watch these movies with this lens in mind. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. makes such a difference. Cause like, I'm sure when I watched it last time, which was probably about two or three years ago now, I was like, ah, whatever. Like it didn't even, it might not have occurred to me or if it did, it was like passing and I was like, whatever. But watching it this time, I was just like, Oh wow, this is noticeably kind of upsetting. Like, like you said, not offensive because it is made, you know, in the late 1930s and we can't really put our lens of 2020, 2021 on yeah. that. But given the subtext, I was like, wow, this is, this is really messed up to watch, but also like a surprisingly subtle and good performance by our lead actress here. Oh, I think yeah, sometimes yeah. with these, with these horror movies in general, and especially horror sequels, maybe we're expecting a little bit less. But there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of pride in this performance. There's a lot of concern in this performance. And that longing is very obvious, but not in a way where you're like, oh, this is just silly. And it almost feels out of place in what was seems like it was designed to be like a fun twist on the Dracula legend. Yeah, yeah. Well... It's, I was having this moment watching this where I'm like, is this representation? <laughs> you know, because like, 
the like that longing, that like wanting to like resist the temptation, like I mean, that does speak to a queer audience. Um, you know, I think you know, cl- being closeted and stuff. Like, you do have those feelings of self-loathing, self-doubt, and you know, um, it sounds like, oh wait, is this like speaking to me at a different level than I was expecting? Because I, I have a feeling this movie was made as a quick kind of cash grab. And um, you're absolutely right. The lead performance is like much more, um, much more, yeah, subtle and dignified. And it feels like almost from an entirely different kind of movie. <laughs> like I was like, where is like? Because it's like not quite campy. I think people will probably call it campy because it's old. But like, um, I don't think it's campy. I think it's actually a very like restrained performance in a lot of ways. And I think she's capturing that. Um, interior battle that interior you know uh feelings of like self like lacking of self-confidence or lacking of self-assuredness so it's Mm -hmm. it's really it's a really interesting movie because like it deals with a lot of i think the psychology of being closeted and acting on impulses that you tell yourself you don't want to act on yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of things like I, you know, for once did a little bit of research uh, <laughs> before, <laughs> before a podcast, which I usually cannot be bothered to do. And there's a there's a website called Horror Home, Homeroom, um, and there's an article about the coded queerness in Dracula's Daughter. And something I definitely did not notice but really has an impact here is – you know, our lead character uses this ring to hypnotize her prey uh, before she, you know, before she takes them, whether it be, you know, uh, male or female. And it's really interesting. The ring that she uses to hypnotize her prey mm-hmm. is on her left ring finger. Yeah. And that's the yeah. finger where a wedding band is traditionally worn. So it. So there's kind of two things going on there. One that I I didn't notice that it was the ring finger, but that's a really important thing. But something I did notice is the relationship we have with Sandor is kind of a mockery of marriage. Yeah. It's a typical heterosexual setup, and he not only protects her from the outside world knowing who she is, but also supplies her with her victim. So he is like weirdly kind of the, uh, you know, the breadwinner of this family. He's, he's bringing home the bacon. He is bringing home the food for her. Um, so it's, it's really interesting that that only starts to change when she expressed an interest in this doctor character. So it's like this weird form of cheating or of adultery. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like this, when she does that, it's read as this odd kind of betrayal to Sandor, even though that relationship is clearly like kind of a, you know, and if you look at this in, in queer themes, like this is very much like I'm hiding in plain sight. Like, yes, I could not possibly be gay. I'm married to this man. Look, it's totally fine. So there's all, all these kind of layers that I certainly did not notice um, on the first watch that make this even more interesting. It's so clever the way that the that their relationship is set up because you know I mean we called him kind of a bitchy queen earlier and like in some ways it's kind of like a marriage of convenience as well. But like there's this yeah the element of infidelity I found I, I really like that interpretation because it. It, it highlights this thing where they are, whatever their system is, like, it works for them. And even if their relationship is, like, a mockery of heteronormative marriage, like, it's still a foundational part of their 
being at this time. So for mm-hmm. her to then go out and, um, you know, kind of be with this doctor or, you know, do things outside of that, you know, you do sense that level of betrayal. And, um, I, th- but then I also wonder, like, is this part of the thing that makes people unsettled because of the cliche of, you know, the queer people like, cheating on their straight marriage? Mm-hmm. You know, that's also something that we see many times, even in movies that we like. Right. Um, but, you know, like, you know, Carol. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, but I, I, I think this, their relationship and, you know, I didn't notice the ring, um, until I was reading about the film and, I was like, oh my god, how did I like just not put that together? But it's so right. it's so clear there that like this means something to them. Right. Uh, I I think I and I think the only like there's a lot of things in here that are like keyed into homophobia, right? Yeah. Um but I think the thing that upset me was the end. Um there's certainly some connections to uh, convert conversion therapy yeah, here yeah. about like basically the idea that gayness is something that you can choose um, and you can choose not to quote unquote give into um, and yeah. you know there's also a history in gay movies you know probably starting here or before and has continued all the way to now of like you know tragedy following gayness yeah. or queerness um and the fact that they have this movie end by her giving in to what what the world sees as a choice uh, gives into this and embraces her vampireness, right? And so by the end of that, she is punished and she is killed for that. So it becomes like you are choosing evil or perversion right, right so we are going to kill you because that is that is the choice you made so you kind of like you deserve this for choosing to yeah, be queer yeah. and that does not sit right with me at any level like i think if the movie even if the movie doesn't end with her death if it moves with her fleeing back to the uh, back to transylvania then this movie doesn't become homophobic for me but as i watch the the end and the death and thinking about it i'm just like Oh man, this is not how I wanted this to go. Especially because she's the most fun character in the entire film. Like yeah, she's the one I yeah. want to follow. I, I don't know about you, but I don't think there's other characters that at least I really rooted for in this. And the movie starts off very strange. It starts off as very much a like. I, I thought like, are we doing like a legal courtroom drama uh, surrounded by Dracula? This is very strange. Right. Uh, right. So I'm glad it went <laughs> the direction it did, but that ending really sours overall a pretty good movie for me. You know, you, you talk about the tragedy, but I was also thinking about like the queer villain trope. That's what mm-hmm. um, that's what came to mind. And uh, I don't know if you've talked about that. And trying to think of our past movies, if we had the so. yeah, so you know, it's a trope for um, queerness to be uh, caught, like shown as villainous and you know, as we're saying, perverse um, and evil. And like uh, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about um, kind of like in like the gay subculture, this idea of like oh, like kind of vampy villains and you know. You know, witches and vampires, and how that gets really embraced, especially like from you know August to November um, around mm-hmm. Halloween time, and uh, you know, it's it's 
it's like I th- I think that um, villains have such an appeal because they're usually kind of like loud and theatrical, and you know they have these like really you know interesting costumes and houses and whatever. You know the performances are usually very flamboyant and. Um, but I think at, at its heart, it's this kind of movie, right? Where it's like the queerness that we're seeing is coded as villainous and, or it's being, um, manifested through monster, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Dracula, as much as, you know, he's become, you know, an iconic figure, he's a villain. He's, you know, he, Dracula and Dracula's daughter, they are threats to, the threats to normalcy, threats to heteronormativity, threats to, you know, in some ways, the American way of life, you know, that, you know, pre-war, post-war um, narrative of the picture-perfect, mm-hmm. you know, American life. And this is, like, right before World War Two, right? So mm-hmm. um, it's... I found the ending sad but i because i you know she you're right she's a character that we root for i mean she's a protagonist of the film she may not be the quote-unquote hero but she's a protagonist and you know i was on this journey with her and i as i was saying i felt you know represented by this sort of the the psychology of, of the closet but then towards the end i was like oh no i think i'm reading this wrong i think i'm reading this film in a way contrary to what the filmmakers intended and what's actually being presented to me um, like I, I'm resisting what's being presented to me because I, I want to see her as a heroic figure as representation, but instead this movie is treating her like a monster and something that needs to be uh, vanquished at the end or conquered at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good point. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the last things I wanted to mention, and I was wondering, so I'm always concerned when I'm watching. Um, when I'm watching a movie that is especially like this, that is, I guess, you know, lesbian leaning, um, we'll say lesbian tinged, yeah. I think is how it's been referred to, uh, in a lot of the reviews. Uh, and when you have scenes like this, um, that gaze at women, um, and everyone except the actors involved in it are male, yeah. obviously have some, you know, have some concerns about that. I think actually very recently, like, you know, to bring a modern ideal to this, like Kira Knightley has come out and said that she won't do any more nude scenes with male directors. Like yeah. she just doesn't want a bunch of men staring at her while she does, you know, scenes where she's naked, which is, right. I think a pretty valid reaction given the history of film. Yeah. And and even if you look at like more modern quote unquote lesbian films like Blue is the Warmest Color, um, which has been uh, roundly mocked by lesbians around the world yeah. uh, for being ridiculous and excessive. So what did you think of these lesbian scenes in this movie, you know, as far as the male gaze go and as far as the way the camera lingers? In talking about the male gaze and the female gaze, I think what happens is that the female gaze is basically the male gaze, but, like, a woman, right? And Mm -hmm. I think what happens is um, what women, I think, are attracted to become is misinterpreted to being, like, the same as what straight men are attracted to. And I mean, I... Or maybe I should say that it's misinterpreted as, like, how straight men look at things, 
and I, do, I don't think it translates like that. And granted, you know, neither of us identify as, you know, female and I uh, certainly don't want to talk over, I mean, I'm, I'm making a lot of generalizations, right? Um, but like, I think that the straight male gaze is so all-consuming over media that, you know, something like, um, you know, something like a, uh, like a magic mic or like that gets interpreted as the female gaze because you're just looking at men. But in fact, I, that's, I would say that's, you know, more the male gaze, but just like on men. And, um, yep. you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be nice to those movies because I like them. Yeah. That can say that might be like the queer male gaze. Fine. But like, I, um, you know, I was listening to a podcast about, um, 50 Shades of Grey and, the woman on the show, I forgot who it was. I, it might have been Amy Nicholson, but she was like, this movie kind of gets the female gaze because it's not just about looking at, you know, nudity, but about like sensual, like sensuality. And, um, or maybe she was saying it was trying to be that. Um, but it, you know, but then she was saying that like the female gaze in some ways is more about like sensuality and admiration. Um, also, if you look at a movie like Hustlers, you know, Mm-hmm. The, that movie looks upon Jennifer Lopez in a way that isn't just looking at her body, but just like admiring her power and her strength and her mm-hmm. agility. And so I think, you know, with Dracula's daughter, these female gaze scenes, like, they don't feel perfectly right to me. They feel a little off just because it's not just like, I, it's, it's like they're trying to make um, Dracula's daughter like, predatory and leery in a way that I don't that doesn't sit right with the character and doesn't sit right with this kind of like sapphic horror film that this movie could be I don't think they were like looking to make that because it's a very heteronormative production I'm sure but this Mm -hmm. movie has the potential of being like something that really taps into that you know lesbian gaze or that queer woman's gaze and just misses the mark by treating Dracula's daughter as if she were Dracula. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. I think um, I was surprised at how I, I don't think it I don't think it avoids the male gaze entirely. No. But I think given the time and given who's involved, it did a surprisingly good job at being not quite as gross as it could have been. Um, so like there's a there's a scene where our lead character, the Countess, is holding holding this woman captive. Um, and I was just looking it up now, I guess, in some journals it's been described as the longest kiss never filmed. Because uh, she just, like, gazes at her and is next to her for what seems like minutes. And it looks – and it's designed to look like a romantic kiss is about to happen yeah. until – the doctor shows up to ruin everything because that's what men do. They just show up and ruin shit. Um, so that scene really works for me, but the rest of it does feel like what men would like to imagine lesbianism is. Yeah. Right. These two very stereotypically beautiful lipstick lesbians, right. In their, in their moment, like this is, this is what especially straight men imagine it to be like when, if you would, I don't know, meet or talk to some lesbians or some bi women, 
you would find that there's some differences uh, between your fantasy and reality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. sure. So. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, you know, like that scene was a very striking to me. I think also because it felt so openly queer, you know, like yeah. there was no doubt about it that there was sexual attention in that scene. And usually with movies from this era and even movies now, a lot is done through implication. <laughs> in a way that's very frustrating mm-hmm. but this movie like it was um there wasn't any consummation of course but of course you can always imagine that you know biting the neck is penetration i mean that's not a new concept but sure. um i think that like yeah i mean i found that scene to be very sensual that that scene felt to me more sensual than sexual which i think sensuality is almost more erotic than sexuality because it's the implication it's the like the um the anticipation it's the like the like feeling it's like the feelings of it not just like you know let's just like if they were to kiss in that scene it might have been improved it wouldn't have improved it because like you don't you almost don't need it because it's almost sensual enough yeah yeah absolutely Okay, so uh, it's it's very interesting for me to watch these older movies, as yeah. I said, with this queer lens, because this is not a movie, like I said, I'd seen it before, it's not something I, I expected, like when you put it on the list, I was like, oh, re- oh really? And then I started thinking about it, I was like, oh yeah, that's okay. pretty fucking gay. <laughs> we that, need to that, talk about this, because you keep telling me that I made this list, but I think you made the list a year I ago. I don't believe that. <laughs> look, <laughs> like, look. 2019 was a different Dave. It, I, I have no memory of that person. Uh, I, I think maybe I found it on a list and I was like, oh, sure, let's do that. Like, we'll find something. The, the Wikipedia list of queer movies has led us astray many times. Yes, yes, definitely, um, definitely. Especially in the 1930s. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's the challenge with these older movies that obviously we're less acquainted with than movies yeah. that came out while we were alive. Yeah, uh, we're yeah. gonna we're gonna run into some uh, some <laughs> barriers, I think. Uh, but this one wasn't that, which was a really nice yeah, surprise. Is, that there uh, were, like lots of lots of implications here that maybe we weren't we weren't expecting. So that yeah. was that was kind of a nice surprise for me. Um, but as always, we're gonna talk about the Russo test, uh, which is kind of the gay version of the Bechdel test. Uh, the first thing it has to uh, has to qualify is the film contains a character that is identifiably lesbian, gay, bisexual, and or trans. So, do you think Dracula's daughter has one of those? Yeah, I think for sure. You know, I think the Countess yeah. is. I mean, he would be like totally obtuse not to catch the queerness of that character. <laughs> Right, absolutely. I mean, I think that as we talked about, I think there's a reason why there's only one male victim and he's dispatched very yeah. quickly. Where she really, you know, she takes her time with the women uh, as opposed to the men. So yeah, there's there's definitely a lesbian character here. Um, and and second, I think she, sorry, I think she would also identify herself as such. You know, if she had yeah, a language so, for yeah. it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, secondly, that character must not be solely or predominantly defined by their sexual orientation or gender identity. So they're made up of the same sort of unique character traits commonly used to differentiate straight characters from one another. So do you think that applies here? Yes, because, she, you know, she does have her, like, bloodlust or her, like, you know, vampireness. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't know. This, this question always trips me up. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I think this is tough in this case because you have to look at it from the perspective of other monster movies. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, do you think – like I think she's just as differentiated by her traits as a character like – the original Dracula or a character like the Wolfman yeah, or Frankenstein. Yeah. Like when we look, if we look at her as a human character, maybe not because she's solely kind of defined by her quote unquote monstrosity and yeah. her perversion. But that is different from just being like, Oh, well that's the lesbian character. Like right, that's, right. I don't think that's what's happening here. So I think, I think it applies. Um, and third, the LGBT character must be tied into the plot so that their removal would have a significant effect. And I think obviously, yes, I mean, if you take out Dracula's daughter from Dracula's daughter, uh, it's going to have it's an untitled effect. movie. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, like this is I mean, I think if before I had rewatched this movie, if you had told me, oh, yeah, this will definitely pass the Russo test, I would have had my doubts. Uh, especially given the type of movie it is, like genre-wise, yeah. and the time that it was made in, I would have had my doubts. But this one, I mean, this one is one of the easiest passes outside of, like, the 2010s, where there's, like, you know, clearly gay characters. Yeah. This was one of the easiest ones to pass this test, which was definitely a surprise. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was, yeah, I think, yeah, I think as we talk about it more, it's definitely a clear pass for me. Yeah, for sure. So to kind of close things out, uh, what have you learned from watching Dracula's Daughter? I think, uh, I guess I just like uh, learned about um, the. I I guess it's more just like confirmation of like yeah these tropes of like the tragedy or the the like the monstrosity is like dates all the way back to the 19th like it's almost kind of baked into movies as they were in their infancy and it has like it's it's shocking to think that we still have that now and there's still you know queer villains out there in you know messing up you know the patriarchy and um also just like how much that like i think queer moviegoers like latch on to these characters just because of like that feeling of being the outsider and wanting to survive and i think how much we have to like find empowerment and representation in movies that aren't giving it to us directly yeah i mean i had a kind of similar lesson i took from this and it's kind of i don't know watching this was enjoyable but also kind of depressing um at like kind of how not far we've come in terms of gay stereotypes in film um we have the tragedy we have the perversity we have as you mentioned the queer villain we had the kind of hidden marriage uh yeah so there's a lot of moments in here where i'm like god really we've been doing this since the late 1930s or mid 1930s that's a little depressing we have to do better like that's what i kept thinking is like yes this movie is of its time but there are things in this movie that have become timeless and that shouldn't be <laughs> that is that is a real problem especially when you have non-gay people making gay films and casting aspersions and judgments and i think that became really clear in watching dracula's daughter mm-hmm. yeah this really highlights the importance of having queer filmmakers um behind the scenes yeah 
Yeah, absolutely agree. All right. So that is it for our episode on Dracula's Daughter. In our next episode, we're going to be covering a a movie called Stage Door um, starring Catherine Hepburn, who we have covered on the show before in maybe not the most flattering light. So here's hoping that Stage Door is better than Sylvia Scarlet. Um, (laughs) It has to be. be it, yeah, it almost has to be. So uh, until then, uh, Manish, why don't you tell people how to reach you online? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at themanish89. That's T-H-E-M-A-N-I-S-H-89. Also, you can see both of our writings at talkfilmsociety.com. Yeah, I guess if you must, since this is the Talk Film Society podcast, <laughs> uh, you can go there. Uh, also, you can follow me on Twitter at DarnThatDave. Um, now that's much easier to spell and remember, so you're welcome for that. Um, and if you'd like to hear more of me podcasting, I'm starting a new podcast where I, I look at the movies you have to see uh, before you die, uh, which sounds very dramatic, but it's really not. There's tons of lists out there that talk about that. We're going to podcast about it on Offspring Death, and you can follow that at Oh, 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 o